Hello, I'm Stuart Craner and this is the Thinkers 50 podcast. Today I'm talking with Jeff Tuff, who's a principal with Deloitte and senior leader of the firm's innovation and applied design practice, and also co-author of a brilliant book called Detonate, Why and How Corporations Must Blow Up Best Practices and Bring a Beginner's Mind to, to, to Survive. The, uh, well, it's a very, a very pithy title and uh, slightly long drawn out subtitle. Uh, I'm talking to Jeff in our usual podcast location, the Fox Club in, in the heart of London. Jeff, welcome. Thank you, Stuart. Thanks for having me. So, Detonate, a, a, re- a really good book, very, a very direct book and, 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 and very practical. What, what were the origins of it from your point of view? Where did, where did it come from? Well, so there were a number of different angles that originally led Steve and me. Steve is my co-author, Steve Goldback, Steve and me to write the book. Um, but certainly one of the ones that I was most interested in was in following up on some research uh, and an article I had published about seven years, six or seven years before we published this book um, that was in Harvard Business Review, and it was a study of what made effective innovation portfolios. And so at the time, what we did is we did some research and we tried to understand um, with the recognition that businesses can't drop everything they're doing and invest only in disruptive innovation, how should they be apportioning their spend between actually trying to disrupt markets versus advance their core business? And so at the time, we made a uh, discovery that uh, HBR called the um, Golden Rule of Innovation, which is that in order to out-earn their peers in the capital markets, the average uh, innovator, the, and I should probably back up a little bit, the, the original inspiration for this was the recognition that um, serial innovators, great innovators, get paid a capital markets premium. But the question is, if you're in that set, how do you actually out-earn all the other great innovators? And what we discovered at the time was that um, the, the right recipe was that you should apportion 70% of your spend and attention to incrementally advancing your core business, 20% to stretching into adjacencies, and 10% to trying to transform markets and transform your business. And strangely, for reasons I still can't um, understand, the three to five year return from that balanced innovation portfolio was virtually the inverse, where 70% of what um, you were able to earn came from those few big bold bets in the transformational space, 20% from the adjacent space, and 10% from the core. So that was the condition six or seven years ago. And how have things changed? Well, so I, pretty dramatically, I would say. So um, th- there's a few things I've learned since um, that article came out, and I've been out speaking with executives and boards about the ideas in the article. Uh, the first is that forever, no one has any clue where their spend has actually been going. So if you ask the average executive team, t- tell me roughly what proportion is focused on your core versus adjacent versus transformational, you're going to get answers all over the place. The second thing I've discovered, and I've just kind of treat this as a universal rule at this point, is that everyone way overestimates the degree to which they're focusing outside the core. So when companies have asked us to come in and do an audit of their innovation system, that, that normally it's 95 or 96 or 97 percent of what people do is, is, is trapped in their core business and not exploring the adjacent or transformational space. For a long time that was fine and there was no danger in that condition because we were working in a world that where change, if not predictable, was at least linear. And what's been happening over the course of the last three or four years is there has been, um, we've seen the impact of exponential uh, technology increases impact all sorts of different business models and all aspects of markets that we play in. And that's changed to, that, that's fundamentally changed where opportunity lies for any company trying to innovate these days. 
And the conclusion from that is that they should spend more time with the core and the adjacencies and ignore the disruption, or no, they've got, got to go the other way. Uh, quite the opposite. So, uh, you know, if you just take that 70 20 10 rule, and that's a very rough rule of thumb, I, I, I would encourage anyone that's interested to actually look at the article because our argument was that that average is not right for most companies unless you're a massively diversified industrial conglomerate. But for easy math, let's take that. So, seven years ago, um, let, let's say half of the adjacent opportunity, so half of that 20% plus the 70% in the core, 80% of the opportunity were in markets that we knew or that were reasonably close to us. So there were real customers that we could go and ask, would they like to buy something? How much would they pay for it? Um, would they value it if we changed what we were offering them? And you're going to get reasonably good data back from the market. This what We call this the known and knowable opportunity space. In the far adjacent and transformational space, by definition, you're working in the unknown and in some cases unknowable space. And without going into all the details of how we define all of these things, transformational innovation comes about when you ignore your asset base and you deploy new capital to go and discover needs that the world has never expressed before. So these are not markets that exist today. And if you use traditional mechanisms to understand what customers are looking for, you're going to get bad data because people just don't know. And so what's been happening over the course of the last three or four years, as all of these exponentials have impacted markets and business models, we're seeing opportunity, the nature of opportunity shift dramatically. And there's a massive migration going on right now from opportunities that used to sit in the known and knowable space, which are studyable, and which by definition is the domain of risk. And as I'm sure you and your listeners know, risk is measurable and therefore manageable. There's a massive opportunity migration from that space to the unknown and unknowable space, which is the domain of uncertainty. And uncertainty cannot be treated like risk, or else you're going to get it wrong. And uncertainty is, is scary for managers. It was five years ago, and probably even more so now. Yeah, but, but I think for a long time people have confused the notions of uncertainty with risk. I, for, for the vast majority of the history of business, we have all lived in a world that, to use our terminology from detonate, is knowable. You can go out and you can study it. And, and the, the, the two terms have been treated interchangeably, and people talk about there being some unter- uncertainty about what to go and do. But, but ultimately, if you're working in the knowable domain, you can, you can go and get data to help you make a decision. But today, uncertainty and what you need to do to deal with uncertainty is completely different because it is genuinely unstudyable. I don't know if that's actually a term, but you cannot go it is now. <laughs> you cannot go and collect data to help you make a decision about what to do. So if you use traditional management systems like StageGate for example, in the known and knowable space, it's going to help you make a good decision. If you use it in the unknowable space, it's actually going to cause value destruction. Where, where does this leave the job of the consultant? Because historically, uh, if you brought in a consultant, you brought them in because they, they knew the pattern of the industry. They knew how the industry worked, and they would figure out your role in the industry and where you're going. But if the, the future is uncertain, the, the, the present is uncertain, what, how can a consultant help you? What is the role? Well, I can tell you there's been some raised eyebrows uh, amongst both my clients and other consultants when we talk about the notion within Detonate that the job of not just consultants, but managers these days, is to blow up best practices. And for a long time, the job of consulting, there was lots of other types of value that consultants brought, but the job of consulting was essentially bringing best practices to businesses. That's no longer sufficient to create competitive advantage. So when I think about what my role as a consultant is to do uh, these days, it's certainly not about bringing best practices, but it really boils down to two essential jobs. One is to help clients understand where 
the nature of opportunity is shifting to and to feel some urgency to go and do something about it. I've been an innovation consultant for a long time now, and it's a great gig because you call up almost any executive and you say, would you like to have a meeting about some of the ideas I have in innovation? Most of the time they say yes. Most of the time the conversation goes great and they, you know, I'll follow up with them a couple days later and they say, loved it, loved everything you had to say about innovation, really interesting ideas, but I've got to close the quarter. So come back three months from now and we'll have a conversation. Lo and behold, three months later, there's another quarter to close. And so for a long time, innovation has been important, but not urgent. And what the conditions that we're living in today is innovation, and my very basic definition of innovation is the creation of new economic value for the enterprise, but that usually means for our customers as well. The job of innovation has become urgent. So job number one for consultants these days is to help clients see and feel the urgency to actually go and do things differently. And the second job is to help them take that first step to go and do it because it is so easy to get trapped in the way things have always been done and to follow the playbooks that have helped build the success of the company in the past and to not look beyond the success models that our forebears have created. And our job as consultants has to be to help clients move to do something different. In Destinate, you argue that companies are hidebound by orthodoxy. Yep. But isn't that the nature of humanity as well as corporations, that orthodoxy will always have a... An allure. Absolutely, safe, because safe because it, it we all want to revert back to the things that make us feel comfortable. And the reality is that um, for most of our lives, we've lived in conditions as humans where doing what feels comfortable and doing what our parents taught us or what we've learned in, in the societies we've grown up in has been generally the right thing. And, and truth be told, I, I'd like to believe as human beings that that will be the condition for a while. I don't think humans are facing the same existential threat that most companies are, but we have to be able to separate... Sometimes feels, feels like they are. <laughs> well, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> but we have to be able to separate our realities as human beings from our, uh, our realities as managers of businesses. And the reality is because of the, the nature of this opportunity migration, Managers have to be able to look at the world differently and understand that doing the safe thing now is actually more risky than exploring the unknown. What about the, the response of people to Destinate? The book's been out for a while now. What, what's, what's the common response? What, what issues in the book do people find difficult with and what, what are people enthusiastic about? So I, I, we've been really pleasantly surprised by the reception that the book has gotten. I think it's um, it, it, the reports we get back from people who have read it is it feels very accessible. The ideas um, make sense. They uh, are compelling. The one thing that we always get asked is, what like what's the first step that I can take to go and apply this? Because it would have been tremendously ironic if a couple of guys came along and wrote a book about blowing up playbooks and offered another playbook in, in yeah. instead, um, which we didn't do. But as I know you know, having read the book, there are, there are four things that... Um, that we recommend any manager does, any reader does, and this can apply to day-to-day lives as well as to businesses. And and the one principle that has really taken hold and, and that we've gotten the best reception for is this whole notion of focusing on human behavior. And so what, what we mean by that um, in the book is that if you just boil down the purpose or the essence of any um, corporation, ultimately what they need to be doing is changing certain human behaviors to create economic value. That should be the mission of any company. And and the way I think about that, and Steve and I talk in the book about human behavior still being the most fundamental unit of um, economic value of any sort of company. So if you think about just a trend line of performance, let's say you've got a forecast revenue line that's growing at 2% or something like that. 
that trend line is not going to change for good or bad unless someone somewhere changes their behavior. And it doesn't have to be just, most people think immediately when we say that, they think about customers, but it could be a customer behavior, it could be an employee behavior, it could be a supplier behavior, it could be a partner behavior, it could be a regulator behavior. Any, if you think about the business value chain for any corporation, for any company, it's made up of an accumulation of human beings who are doing things. And I don't care how digital a company you are, that's going to be right for the, that's going to be true for the foreseeable future. The job of companies should be, be to understand what those humans, what, who those humans are, what the behaviors are that can, can create some economic advantage, and to focus on the ones where the upside is greatest. And if they can then focus disproportionately on driving that behavior, they will, by definition, be successful. But if you, th if you think about the average company or the average person in a company and how much of their time is spent thinking about or working on human behaviors versus filling out spreadsheets or preparing for the stage gate meeting or going through the annual strategy, uh, the strategic planning process, it, it's, it hardly ever shows up as being one of the important activities. And it, and it has to be. So that, uh, of the various principles that we lay out, that's one of the, um, that's one of the most, uh, I think, appealing to both managers and, and readers because it feels very accessible. It feels like something they can go and implement right away. So managers that are in the business of changing human behavior. That they should be, yes. I, I, I'm not sure that everyone actually follows through on that. Well, not everybody's read the book, I suppose. Well, I, we can change that. But that's a, that's a daunting thing, isn't it? If, 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 that's, if that's the objective of you, of you as a manager and, and as, a, as a company, actually changing human behavior sounds, to me, a fairly daunting endeavor. It, it could be daunting, especially in the face of what people are actually spending their time on, but yeah. but it can also, I would like to feel that, I would like to believe that it feels compelling as well, because when we change human behavior, we actually have a chance to do things that create a better human experience. And that, that sounds probably very lofty, but I, I genuinely believe that there is, and at least should be alignment between what is going to make people's lives better. Again, whether we're talking about customers or employees or suppliers, anyone, what makes lives better and what creates economic value for enterprises. And that, to me, should be an appealing mission for any manager. Well, it's good to start with a lofty aspiration and work backwards. Yeah. The, um, so where does the research go next? Um, so, I first of all, I would like to say, I would like to see um, some of the ideas taking hold in the world and, and some of the companies that we've been working with on the detonate principle. So certainly one aspect of the research that Steve and I are carrying forward is just seeing which things work best and what some of the moves are that companies are making that help lead to um, rapid change. Because one of the key things in all of this, and we talk about in the book, um, the purpose behind the principles in detonate is to just go do something and do it quickly. Not because the sky is falling and your, your company's going to fall apart if you don't, but if you, if you don't take that first step, then you're never actually going to be able to succeed in applying the principles. And so we, we, we are studying the way that people are most effectively taking that first step, and there's lots of different models for doing it. The second direction that we're taking things these days um, related to some of these is in trying to think about how companies, especially uh, massively scaled organizations that have multiple different business units and functions and assets that they have to deal with, how they can cut through all the complexity and thinking about what the strategy of the organization is to cut through all the complexity to identify the hot spots where businesses and assets and functions um, align to create that value, where these human behaviors lie and use that as a radiating point to um, let an overall corporate strategy unfold, which is a different way of approaching strategy than companies have traditionally um, engaged in corporate strategy, which has been very much from a top-down perspective. So the, the so-called hotspots 
of human behavior within companies and within value systems and how focusing on those hotspots can create a radiating effect is one of the ideas we're carrying forward from this. Jeff Duff, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for the time.